0: just two local guys with so much to say, so listen to the Real Estate Brothers today. This
1: is the July 41st episode of the Monthly Market Update which your friends here, the Real Estate Brothers, Lane Calco myself, and uh, here we go.
0: We just two local guys with so much to say about us today.
1: All right. So we start off with the Easter egg here for you guys. If you guys are vaccinated, I guess there's a little Hawaii lottery that you can win some free stuff. If you guys have gotten vaccinated, you guys can email me at lane at cash flow with the subject line COVID" And I'll give you the free remote investor e-course lite version. And if you haven't yet, go and go to that Hawaii Got Vaccinated website and then you can win some free stuff there too.
0: Yeah. Wow, Lane. episode 41, we're, we're, we're not getting any younger, and uh, we've been through quite a few of these, and I was I was going to suggest, maybe because we're not getting younger, and also for you, we, we could also transition to the real estate fathers, take a chance to say congratulations to you on being a father, dude.
1: Yeah, young Kira was born a few weeks ago, and then one of the investors said, Kira, like IRA, Kira? And I was like, yeah. So then oh. I went to the wife, and I was like, "Did you know there was IRA in the, in the thing?" And she was like, "Oh, jeez, not again." But anyway,
0: you're gonna, you're the IRA Kira. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. So, why don't we jump in? Today's July first, so just the beginning of the New Year. Statistics for June is not gonna come up for another five days, but we'll call it the Nostradamus prediction again. That we're we'll, we're gonna have new records. Uh, being broken, but actually not really. I, I think some statistical information that preliminarily pulled. It looks like for single family homes for June, we might possibly break, break a new record. So if you guys recall last month for May, the median single family price for Oahu was 978,000. So for June, we might just break the record by a thousand possibly, and we might be in at 979. In any re- regards, it's still trending upwards is a point. And if you compare it to same time last year, June 2020, as a difference it was 772.5 was the median price a year ago. And then again, as we mentioned before, keeping in everything in perspective, that was in the heat of COVID, right? That's what caused this big jump from prior year. Condo townhouse median prices are probably gonna be just about the same. I think for May it was 457.5. And some change. So I think it's going to probably be around the the same for June. And then compared to prior year was, which was 420,000. Nothing new. Things seem to be trending up. And as I like to do, not particular attention to the exact numbers, but just look at the lines and the, and the diagram. So the new listing trends on the right side is looking a little better because as you can see, there's a little uptick. Um, At the tail end here for the last two months for both single-family and condo townhouses, we have a little bit of uptick in terms of new new listings popping up compared to um, a month before. So we have uh, 471 new listings for single-family and 769 for condo townhouses for the month of June. But then again, on the bad news, we see homes for sale. We see it looks like hopefully it might be bottoming out in terms of how much inventory we actually do have. So you can see it's going down or hopefully leveling off in terms of what's available. The big one, month's supply of inventory. So again, as we mentioned before, this is if we were to have no new homes pop up on for sale, how long would the current existing available inventory last before it's all gone and sold off? So for single family, we have 1.1 months of inventory and condo townhouses, two months, which... Are extremely low. Again, uh, story hasn't changed for a while now. It's strong seller's market. One interesting thing I saw was for the median percent of list price. So this is what compared to list price, what the house actually sells for. So this data from InfoSparks goes back to January 2005. And as you can see, only in the last few, and only in this year, actually, we've actually seen single family jump over 100% which is interesting because if you're someone in the market putting in offers in single family homes you're often seeing it go over over asking price 50,000 maybe 100,000 but according to InfoSparks, only in January of 2021 and June have we seen single fam- or any prices go over the list price for median prices. So I thought that was interesting. What it means, I'm not too sure, but it's weird because since 2005, it's never gone over 100%, which is really interesting. I I thought it would have been a a lot more, especially Mm -hmm. in the last two years. But we'll see, I have no opinion on what that means. I'm still trying to figure it out myself.
1: So So the list price is arbitrary, right?
0: That's a very good point, Lane. That's a very good point. Like As realtors, we're trying to provide comparables to our clients to, and it's based on historical, what's available and also what's closed and what's pending. And it's up to the seller or the owner to to determine what they want to price aggressively, or if they want a list to sell, or you know, if they want to try to break some new records. Oftentimes to your point lane, it's arbitrary and you put it out there. And because it's so hot, uh, the market decides what the price is going to sell at. But if I was yeah. a
1: realtor and I was just out for padding my stats, I'd like list a home for a doll. see what <laughs> happens. And then just do one of those per year. And then I can tell everybody like, oh, I'm hitting like 120% of the offer that lifts. Oh, yeah.
0: Realtors do all the time. Oh, we just sold at $100,000 yeah. over asking price. That's $100,000 to a little bit, right? Honestly, for single family, it is crazy. It's off the hook. And we've priced, I've been on both sides of the tail where we've, priced we thought was aggressive and then we, we were getting still 80,000 over asking and there's no comps that would have supported that the market is just crazy and there's been other times where we thought we priced it conservatively and then it sits for a bit to your point laney it is arbitrary and the market will um, determine what the, the price will sell yeah i figured out yeah, let's talk about some tips for our buyers as well as our sellers we're starting off with our buyers this is information or tips that actually should be coming from your lender when you're a buyer, here's four mistakes that buyers make while they're in escrow or even before that. Number one is not checking your credit report regularly. The statistic is that 34% of Americans have errors on their credit reports. It's something you should request annually, review it, and and see if there's anything that should be contested, removed, or anything like. Another mistake is not being honest on the application. Like the the whole drill is that you're Lenders, underwriters are going to be digging in to corroborate what you're putting on the application. doesn't make sense to, to put anything that even a little, what you think might be a little white lie, it could end up throwing everything off, I would say. Just be honest. It doesn't make sense to fib on it. Another mistake, and this is you know, a little bit hard. Try not to take a new job while you're in escrow. It may not t- typically be a deal breaker per se, but it could slow things down and I say this is hard because right in current times, depending on your industry, this may be something you can't control as much as possible. Try not to be transitioned to different jobs while you're in this buying process. And if you do, again, be upfront with your lender and just tell them as soon as it's happening. Another thing is you talk to your lender and ask them, well, what if I do this, right? Will this have any effect? A lot of buyers, while they're in escrow, they're like, oh, we're getting a new house. Let's go shopping for furniture, and we're gonna. Where does it go on your credit card? Uh, Or even worse, you buy a a car, and and you take a loan out, and that is gonna affect your credit. Making major purchases uh, while you're in escrow isn't is a no no. Too again, it may not be a deal breaker, but it could be, and it could also slow down the the process and the the time frame that you close. It could throw kinks. Worst case scenario, you you won't qualify for and get your final approval for the loan. But try to stick away from those things if you're in process. Not to say you're walking on eggshells, but just be cognizant of what can affect your credit while you're still in escrow. Some
1: other best practices, be careful of any kind of transactions bigger than a third or a quarter of your paycheck. Those will usually get flagged by the lender. Best case scenario, you have to write a to whom it may concern letter, which is really annoying either way. And then Best practice too is just never email your lender if you're doing something that you think is quite, not really questionable, but like we'll put a flag on some like underwriter. Like just call them up and get yeah. informal. I know a friend, he's doing this. This is <laughs> his application. Because once you put it in writing, you're screwed. And, and I, I say this because I think the underwriting requirements are really dumb. Like it makes absolute no sense. If you don't have really clean financials, W2 income. It's super hard to apply for these loans, which just dumbfounds me, it frustrates yeah. me a lot. Because these are people who qualify easily. I've mm-hmm. had it, people like were already like three, four weeks into a closing on our rental property and they changed jobs, it would have been all fine if they wouldn't have just said they they wouldn't have disclosed additional information for no reason other than disclosing it. They should have not disclosed it because they wouldn't have done anything,
0: anything And even now, more than ever, there's additional scrutiny in terms of, okay, well, let's make sure this buyer is still employed just before we close because current employment situation, you, you never know, if, especially if someone's in the tourist industry or something like that in Hawaii. You don't know what's going on. Although right now the trend is looking pretty positive for us in terms of tourism. I think we talked about some statistics last month, Elaine. Anecdotally, I don't know about you, Elaine, but I, I went to uh, the Prince Hotel for some sushi. I like it. It's a nice izakaya place. There's a sister sushi restaurant in Tokyo that's, it's, it's really fun and it's very reasonably priced. But I was talking to the valet when I was leaving and I was like, Oh, so how's things going? He's like, yeah, they're like, they've been in full swing for the, Last month, I think, they're like at 80s, 90s percent in terms of occupancies, So pretty good, you know, positive buys, as long as that delta strain doesn't come upon us. On the side for sellers now, here's some one big issue for sellers. The way, however you look at it, it's buyers too, but it's the appraisal. And they're not coming in where we want them to. And they're coming under purchase price or agreed upon price. Things to keep in mind, whichever side you're on, is that transactions that are pending or active listings are typically not considered in the final opinion value. You can't say, oh, I'm in contract for $950,000 and there's another comparable four-bedroom house this is at 1.2. I'm golden, right? And no, that's the inherent issue with appraisals is they look at historical closed transactions and that's what they're basing their appraisal Off of, that's the challenge we have, especially in an upward moving market, trying to substantiate these prices that are, or these agreed upon purchase prices that are pushing the envelope on an upward moving uh, trend. Keep in mind, one fourth of offer prices are higher than appraised value, meaning one out of four times we're coming out short, right? One way that the seller can help or the seller you're with assistance from your realtor or your agent is to detail, itemize uh, any improvements or innovations that you have and provide it to the appraiser. And if you have invoices or costs or the price that you paid to do these improvements or renovations, that also helps. It's, it's not the gold, um, silver bullet and it gets you up there, but it helps provide perspective to the appraiser. And if anything, it's evidence for them to substantiate a higher uh, appraisal. As a realtor, I'm never afraid to talk to the appraiser. You don't want to influence them or make them think you're influencing. And every appraiser is different. Some appraisers, I think they're, they're God. In some case, they are in the situation because our hands are tied. But oftentimes, appraisers are very amicable and friendly. And I'd like to talk to them, let them know about the improvements that Go have gone on what makes this property more valuable than others and how, or even why it may be perceived as less, but why it's not just letting them know your opinion. No, there's no harm in that, assuming that the appraiser is open to discussion and to talk about it. And sometimes I'll even provide like a packet of information, but it is what it is. They're going to pull the comparables and you know, what they say goes. You can contest it, on um, the buyer's agent can contest it, or if it's on the VA side, if it's a tide water, there's an, a process where you can appeal. But at the end of the day, you're at the whim of the appraiser. Just do what you can to increase the chances of the appraisal coming out because it's in the benefit of both the buyer and the seller for it to come out. Regardless of what I put as a fourth bullet point, which is an appraisal clause, if anyone has been putting in offers Recently, And to get a fighting chance, you should all know what an appraisal clause is, right? In terms of the buyer is willing to come up with the difference of the appraisal clause versus the purchase price in order to ensure that you close. Ideally, on the seller side, you would want to have a buyer who submits an appraisal clause and that they're financially able to to do so if it does come out short. And on the buyer side, to increase your chances of winning in a multiple offer situation or getting your Offer accepted. Appraisal clauses are going to help you in the light of looking like a stronger offer for the seller. Just a few tips. Cool things in the news. Uh, this one's more for the tenants and the landlords. I think a few months ago, we talked about the Supreme ruling. This one, I think that it was appealed a few months ago. This, I believe, should be the final verdict that's saying that the U.S. Supreme Court has said that the CDC lacks authority to implement these nationwide eviction moratoriums. According to this new finding or what the, the court has said, now they're not, uh, CDC isn't allowed to do this stuff. But with that said, they weren't going to remove the ban. They are just going to let it run out, which it's supposed to run out at the end of July, which is interesting. I think for the state of Hawaii, G- Governor Ige has uh, eviction moratorium goes to the beginning of August, August 6th or something. I think is what it is. We'll see what happens, right? Because whenever you have a federal mandate that differs from the state, then it always gets all funky like that. The NAR president was saying for more than a year, mom and pop property owners have been pushed toward financial ruin as they upkeep their properties and pay their taxes and mortgages with no income on their own. Again, that's coming from the landowners or landlord standpoint. It's hard because then when you look at it from the tenant standpoint, if they're not gainfully employed, then you're gonna what do you do? Do they get put out on the street and become houseless. Two sides to every coin, but I just wanted to bring up that this came out yesterday. Some Another fun article that came out, I just saw this from today, was in California, what's called the Flintstone House. So they were getting sued by the neighborhood. Again, this is in like San, San Fran, Northern California. And this house was considered an eyesore because of the shape, the colors. And it said, yabba dabba Do" in the yard. There is. The Flintstone gang, and there were dinosaurs. And so, everyone, meaning the neighbors, were all complaining because they said they they didn't have the permits to make this house. It was a lawsuit from uh, 2019, and it just got settled this spring. The owner was uh, actually an Asian American, Ms. Fang. She's Chinese American. Uh, I think she's getting 125 thousand dollars to cover her legal fees and she's also needs to now retroactively permit the property which i think according to the settlement once she submits it it will be approved but laying on the next pic- slide you'll see some fun pictures i was like oh this is this might be a fun tourist attraction there's literally dinosaurs in the yard there's uh, fred wilma there you know and inside there's actually it looks like a prehistoric home or flintstone home i don't think she lives there and i think it's like a tourist attraction if you guys are in that bay area maybe you guys want to go take a look at that place i think she bought it for like 2.8 million too back in 2017 something fun in the news and to end off my section of the this month's on to see talk about a fun fact we are halfway through 2021 officially today is day 182 of a 365 day today is the last day of the first half of 2021 maybe it's a good time to look at your goals your annual goals your new year's resolutions your vision boards to see are you halfway at that point and if not how are you gonna pivot to get there hopefully it's more of a motivational thing for you when i put this slide in i was like oh i better go look at my vision board to see where i am on track was so a good checkpoint to, for you, for me, and to see where you guys are at. That's what I have for my portion, Lane.
1: People are interested in learning about investing on the mainland. Check out my podcast, simplepassivecashflow.com. We talk a lot about investing as a credit investors, a tax, legal, infinite banking, those type of topics and iTunes, Google play, YouTube, all of the such. And if folks want to ask any live questions, type it into the, the chat. But comments section, both will be watching those. But some teaching points before I get into the news here, had a great couple podcasts about Bitcoin and crypto. I think people talk about crypto, there's three main ways of playing this stuff. There's the staking, where you're just getting the yield on it. There's the investing in more of the blue chips ones like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And then the third one, which I think gets a little bit too much play, is the investing in the altcoins like your polka dots, your Deutsch Coin, and all these asymmetric risk type of coins. I think most people that I interact with just will play around with the blue chips, these Ethereum, and Bitcoin. But where do you start? Because I think most people who are Bitcoin crazy are probably paying with more than 20%, 30% of their portfolio. But the, the people above a million dollars net worth, I usually see anywhere from 1% to 5 maybe 10%. Of their net worth, and here are different levels from a scale to one to seven. How confident are you in this stuff? I'm fairly confident in it, but I don't think I personally would go higher than five or seven. I don't really have anything right now. The stuff I have is pretty negligible at this point. I think look at these top four guys: Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, Michael Bloomberg. You know, you know their net worth comparing to that their tax rate there on the right side. I'll learn to invest like an accredited investor. It's not like you're. Dodging taxes, you're doing your fair share of the help around here. The tax code is built to incentivize you to do certain things that the government wants. If you follow the directions, to do what they say, you, don't, you get to pay little to no taxes. If you're just investing in normal stuff like the average person and you're from 15 to 30 something plus per effective tax rate, this is why I like real estate. Real estate has the great tax benefits. And that picture on the left is the Bitcoin miners in China that trying shut it down. <laughs> All these things are like not worth anything. And this is why I like real estate. It's a hard asset. It's worth something at the end of the day. It cash flows and it has great debt terms. I'm, I'm going to try to go through the news real quick. HSBC Bank is closing. They're getting transferred over to Citizens Bank on the East Coast and Cathay Bank on the West Coast. A little bit of consolidation there for some banks. Zumper came up with this great report on the rent growth. Um, this story started probably earlier this year, but I think there's no secret. Taxes or not tax, but rent increases are skyrocketing at this point. If if there was some doubt before, that doubt is gone. Rent for two bedroom apartments rose nationally by 4.8 percent year with a 3 percent increase for one bedroom apartments. This includes a lot of the gateway cities and. All the way across the country, Milwaukee grew 8.9% year, but dropped 5.2% month. Glendale, Arizona went up 15.7%. We're going to go into some other new sources, similar data, a little bit of variation too, but the the story is the same. Rents are going up. Which city saw the largest swings in Irving in in order one through five? Irving, Texas, uh, San Francisco, California, Madison, Wisconsin- Des Moines, Iowa, Reno, Nevada, Austin, Texas, Baltimore, Plano, Texas, Detroit, Michigan, Chandler, Arizona. Those are some of the top ones. The downward ones, Spokane, Washington, slipped 5.2%. They're still up 13.6% year over year. Richmond, Virginia, Durham, North Carolina, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Boise, Idaho. All those dropped slightly, but are still up year year for the year. I think a lot of people talk about Boise. That place is absolutely blown up. But what, what a lot of people don't realize is that's still a very small market. If a small amount of people move, it's going to move pricing quite a bit as comparison mm-hmm. if 10 times of people move to a city like Houston, Texas with, I think, maybe 20 times the population or 30 times the population of Boise.
0: Is that like a tertiary Boise not even?
1: I. It's a small tertiary market yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. They went down a little bit, but that's just because probably it just blew up for the past 18 months out there. It's a great example of headlines that make the news, but is it the long-term kind of a thing? May or may not. Here, page comes out with their statistics on annual rent change. Riverside, Phoenix, Sacramento, Las Vegas, all over 10% rent changes per the year. Rounding out the others are Tampa, Memphis, Atlanta, Jacksonville, Greensboro, Salt Lake, between the 9 to 7% range, and then between 7 to 4% are Virginia Beach, West Palm Beach, Charlotte, Providence, Detroit, Baltimore, Fort Lauderdale, Indianapolis, Fort Worth, Raleigh. D-
0: 13%. That's just crazy. Yeah, I mean. that is
1: crazy. Anything above 3% is a sign of super healthy market.
0: Or hyperinflation or something.
1: <laughs> that too. I don't know. Maybe it's, I would say two thirds inflation, one third just demand. Here's another one from Realtor.com. Riverside, that same one that they put as 13.5%. Realtor.com it has them at 19.2% year-over-year rent growth. Memphis at 17%. Tampa at 16%. Phoenix 16.8%. Sacramento 15.8%. I know you got. Actually, I'm I'm a Las Vegas investor now myself. Yep. Yeah. 12.2%. Here we go, I buddy.
0: It. I love it. When are we going, Wayne?
1: Uh, I don't know, man. Oh, here's another. I don't know. What is your thoughts on this? Like this article, home affordability declines, right? Because prices are going, that also has to do part of this, right? As people yeah. are unable to afford houses, where do they go?
0: They go and rent apartments. So, and to your point is also driving up, which is so interesting, right? Because interest rates are have gone down so low. And it, like here, the buying power has gone up so much. But in Hawaii, especially for single family, inventory is so low that these bidding wars are, are crazy. I heard one property in the beach had a uh, 60 offers on it. So, was, man, to, you know, there's so many different moving parts that affect, right, the sales side. And then now you're looking at the rental side. And to your point, Lane, rentals are going up. So I have sellers, too, who are looking either to upsize or downsize, or just buy some replacement properties, and that's rough. And then they say, okay, what if we go rent? And then they're looking at rentals. Even that's pretty tough. It's it's creating this, this crazy issue for all. And, and we all, we always talk about uh, the cost of lumber going up too and all of these different moving parts affecting us. That's why it's yeah. cool that you're apprised of all these different things because, to me, that's value.
1: Lumber actually went down, though, the last few weeks.
0: Oh, um, the last few weeks, got it. It
1: actually is. And they say it's going to be around there but. You know, exactly to your point for people who aren't like too tied into how this works. Interest rates go down so people can afford more, which you asked me is dumb. They should afford it anyway. Just because you can qualify for more debt doesn't mean you should go and buy a bigger house. But anyway, I'm not their parents. <laughs> they can, they, they can make their own choices, but most people will go and buy a bigger house and that's what pushes the prices higher because people can afford it. But the question is, well, at what point does the interest rates go lower and barring affordability go higher and they can afford more to a point where people are just stretched to that much, right? What is the the limit? Do they get maxed out on the jumble loan or their constraints at that service coverage ratio? And the point, and I think that's the point we're getting to, right? We're testing that where how high can it go? The people can't afford it? It's just like rents, right? Like in Dallas, Texas, back in the day, the, the, Mid two thousand or 2010s, you could rent an apartment, a one bedroom, two bedroom, nine hundred bucks. Today, that same thing is sixteen hundred dollars a month, and the thing keeps going higher and higher. When can that person making forty grand a year not afford the sixteen hundred, the seventeen hundred, the eighteen hundred dollar a month? It just keeps going and going.
0: Yeah, no, ec- economics gets all jacked up,
1: especially with the home buying because the home buying is you can fake your way to getting a bigger house, but with renting per month. That's why I like to go off this metric, what are the rent increases doing? Because that is going off of people who aren't fudging the numbers with financing. If you don't make a certain amount per month, you can't afford... Usually, the rule of thumb is like one-third of your income goes to your month, your rent. You you can't fudge that. You're not going to borrow that.
0: And so, theoretically, all of these forecasted rent increases for all intents and purposes for, say, the syndications... It's just bumping up the exit price, right? In terms of the fair market value that it's going to sell for in the future. But
1: people do it all different ways, right? Some people assume that their rents are going to go up 5%, which to me is wishful thinking. But hey, however you want to run your numbers, you're just going to be screwed over when it doesn't. But yeah, if it goes higher, then it's all gravy at that point. Or it makes up with other mistakes along the way. But yeah, these are all like real numbers, like Memphis going up 17%, Phoenix going up 16.8%. I, I do think like a lot of these places, they went down maybe a few percent points in the pandemic. Potentially, And you could probably deduct that off of this, but that's still a pretty high record for a two-year period.
0: Like you said, that question that begs me to think too, if it's rent year over year, is this data skewed from the standpoint of was the rent reduced at the heat of COVID? And so then is this now a correction back up to what's the the pre-COvid numbers again I guess that's
1: you know how news is right they're always trying to make a bigger number I think this realtor.com is doing exactly right they're going from the trough and measuring to now that's how they're getting these real you know video game kind of numbers I think this is more realistic year seven to me I know Phoenix like before the pandemic it was going up anywhere from four to six percent that to me is super high. Like anything above 6% is just unheard of. But this is the bounce back.
0: And, and what, to your point, too, at least we see the same consistency in what's going up. But I guess it almost corroborates each other. Which one you want to pick? Probably the more conservative one, right?
1: Yeah. I think the takeaway is just the, like the relative rankings, right? Yeah. I do some office. This is a article talking about from commercial property executive rising sublease rates, occup- office mm-hmm. occupancy. So what they're doing there is, like, some of the bigger tenants, like a J.P. Morgan, or experience, like, the, with the bigger offices, they'll eat up space left by other folks. But, again, it's just, like, another case of the stronger the we get blown out. But here, like, Wash uh, Reed is, I guess, a big kind of a Blackstone or a Sam Zell kind of character. Like, they agreed to sell. They sold off their office portfolio, $760 million, and they're shifting their focus to multifamily. Probably because of the more, you know, recession proof nature of the asset class performed through markets acquisition in the Southeast market to reduce its leverage by repaying outstanding debt. That's what the big players are doing. And also Blackstone bets $6 billion on shifting path to suburban homes. They're going after single family homes, 1,700,000 homes. No different. I think they did this post pandemic, post recession too.
0: That wash read one is interesting because, and I'm not a commercial dude by, or retail by any means, but it feels like you're agreeing to it now, and you're say you're selling at the low. Wouldn't you You don't want to sell low? I don't know, and buying high. But
1: then again, it's every day you don't sell it, you've chosen to buy it. I mean, people sit on like losers all day long, and if you haven't sold, you've agreed to your buyer you're long right. the position. Right. I think these are the pros investing here, right? They're yeah, not like some true. amateurs who got their ego wrapped up. Oh, I don't want right. to cement a loss. I'm underwater of my house. I don't want to cement the loss. I'm going to write it up, even if it takes 50 years. Uh, these are the pros don't do that st- type of stuff. They don't get emotion.
0: Yeah. Good point.
1: But it's interesting that the thing is like these big group, they have trouble getting in the weeds and managing these 17,000 homes. It's a problem. So this is a, a graph of what's been happening from the lending perspective. So it's hard to see. It. It's small, but the blue tip is your Key locks, your greens are your free finances, and your purchases are the dark blue. So the purchases have been slightly going up. But the thing that's been jumping up lately is the green one, which represents the refinance. these last three quarters. That's what a lot of people are doing these days, probably because of the lower interest rates and they want to stay. I'm,
0: I'm in the green, actually, too.
1: We're refinancing a lot of the multifamily stuff right now. And a lot of the COVID reserves are going away now, what they're saying. The pandemic is over and as we said before the <laughs> CDC away, oh yeah yeah here it is this is you're talking about it and you had this article too before mm. right yeah um, the CDC moratorium is going away let's not argue if it was constitutional or what if they had jurisdiction or not because that's a waste of time but what's happening when it does go away and people don't have that protection that they can't get evicted obviously we try and invest in more red states where people don't pay we still evict them we find a way to evict them their means to evict them as opposed to other states where it takes an act of God to rightfully evict somebody. There's the forbearance program going to be burning up. And then the July 31st is the uh, moratorium rents. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Some yeah. people, I had George Newber in the podcast. And he's a big uh, single family investor. I think it's very different than the large apartments and office commercial retail, but residential real estate which are like one to four units i do think that you're going to see a lot of foreclosures i don't know if that's going to pull off pricing i don't think yeah. it'll impact hawaii but i yeah. think on the mainline you're going to see the prices come back down
0: interesting my cpa had mentioned but unrelated that the aicpa re- reported that the we didn't have any of this in the news articles but the aicpa reported that government f- spent to date 14 Billion, I believe on COVID relief related expenditures. Wow. That's, that's a lot of money. We talked about the hyper, the inflation and rents going up, property values going up and all the moving parts, right? So that's just another moving part in terms of fed spending and keeping the rates down. I think, and the latest word on the street is that the feds are going to keep the rates at, uh, low through 2022 and may start increasing rates in 2023. I think that was yeah, last I, year.
1: I think I've heard that yeah. saying too. It,
0: it affected the stock market, I think, when the Fed announced or implied that because I think they thought it would be later. Then I think the markets took a little bit of a hiccup that day.
1: But then the job came Went out. People always forget yeah, yeah. after a couple of days, but the jobless right. games came out and things are looking pretty decent. Positive, yeah. Yeah. Right, right. I don't know, man. I mean, my opinion, like, I think you're ready. We're ready for people are going to make a lot of money, like, legacy wealth in the next few years
0: agreed start get your dry potter ready or start yeah. get your lobster
1: yeah. chaps out there Get it getting working if exactly. not exactly you're gonna be one of those like guys that just complaining and say ah, I didn't so comfortable but anyway like Arbor came out with this little graph that I thought was interesting it broke down well who owns all these assets on single-family homes are primarily 70% of are owned by individuals which I call mom- and-pa investors or unsophisticated folks. When Blackstone comes out and buys 17,000 properties, that's just a drop in the bucket, but that would probably fit in this little 1% of institutional managers. The light green. Two to four units are still very similar. Your mom and pa investors, um, but your multifamilies are pretty much owned by institutional, or I think I would just call this what, 50, 60% are owned by LPs, L- LLCs, so small groups or larger more sophisticated investors. You don't have the mom-and-pop investors, about 10%. Here's like your pricing on residential homes. Your red is your high-end. The high-end is spiked, probably because for those of folks who make a good salary out there, white-collar professionals, you probably were very unimpacted by the pandemic, especially if you're unable to hold on to your job. And work from you have more money to spend because you're not able to spend it. Prices for high end homes have gone up. It's if you notice there's a little bit of inverse between the affordable homes, which is the turquoise color here, has spiked and got even higher, uh, relatively speaking, than the mid price home. That kind of tells you something, right? Like it's the low end stuff is what more demand.
0: Right. Interesting though, how it all pretty much moves in unison. There's a difference, and there's a the gap is between the High end, like Lane, you said, there's a gap yeah in the high end compared to the affordable. And the mid is, and the affordable are pretty close.
1: In the recession, this was the opposite, right? Your high end was, I think, getting wiped out. By, I guess everybody got wiped out.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You had a image on this on like the Hawaii yep. demand. Hmm. So this is days on market, which is indicative of the, the demand. And supply out there, but this is your hotness of your market. Hot, your market. What is the seller's market defined as? Like sixty days, or we are in a seller's market.
0: We do have a comment from anonymous Facebook user or a question before we end. It says, pre-IPOs have been more accessible. Than in previous decades, are they worth getting into? Elaine, I'll let I'll let you.
1: <laughs> you, I don't know. I don't invest in stocks. I think it's all fake money.
0: Back in back in the dot com boom, I think that was there's a whole different story. And when I was getting into it, but I, to to your point, I haven't really been following the the IPO the wave and trying to trying to jump in on something. And look at it; it's almost trying to jump in on something with baked in equity or something like that. But it's even more risky from the standpoint of value add plays that we do or properties that we're getting off market that have baked in equity. It it feels like you can really determine that there's a lot of more calculated risk pre-IPOs where you're not sure where it's going to be when it actually goes IPO. I can't comment on that with any type of knowledge, I guess you could say.
1: I did a little bit of research Nothing in the last month, but the past maybe few months I did a little mini dive into like tech startups, which I fit in this realm, asymmetric risk type of opportunities. Okay. I discovered that yeah, you can make a boatload of money, but your hit your batting average is gonna be like, I don't know, like one out of thirty or fifty, you might ten X, twenty X so what I'm going for as an investor is like I want a higher hit rate. I'm I'm okay with making little singles and base hits here or there. Right. I want my weighted average to be higher and more predictable than waiting on like a shooting star one out of 40 deals i invest
0: basically reduce that risk return tolerance and bring that down right because to your point when when we have a bigger nest egg to play with and and we don't want to lose principle right that's the biggest thing that's going to hurt
1: capital preservation Ah. i just want more to me it's more the what is the average return right? If I invest a right. million dollars in 20 deal, and only one does decent or good, what is the average of the whole million dollar portfolio with 95% of it just that went to zero? As opposed if I just would invest it into 20 stabilized cash flowing, real estate, hard asset deals, very lower risk or moderate returns, lower risk. Like To me, I think it's a numbers thing, right? What's my average return going to be? Something I realize. But interacting with people in the spaces, a lot of it is just like really rich people. Just they're just bored, quite frankly. Is what I discovered, and this is where I backed off because I realized a lot of these guys didn't know nothing about the technology or the business or the operators. And I started to realize I was in a dumb person. That way, I realized it was a sucker play when the average returns are less than something that's more predictable or prudent, like real estate. But who knows okay. if, if if I was worth. Fifty million dollars, I'd be investing in IPLs all the time because I don't care. But that said, most people listening aren't worth five million dollars or greater. Right? right? You guys have to build your wealth, and I think that's with cash-flowing real estate
0: or things that are hard. So, sorry, Facebook user, we don't really have a educated answer for you. Yeah,
1: sorry, we're not that. We're not we're a different channel probably for you. We're know? not
0: sorry. We're not pre ip <laughs> We're not the pre-IPO, yeah. but uh, so. But yeah. thanks, thanks for the question, though. Thank you for tuning in and uh, asking that question, though. Appreciate yeah, that.
1: But it's a very valid question, and I think it brings up a point that it's like the pre-IPO or like altcoins for Bitcoin, which are essentially like tech startups.
0: Comparable. Yeah, yeah, I agree, like, agree. And yeah. that's
1: what frustrates me with the altcoins. Like tech startups only, like they restricted a lot to like accredited investors to that stuff. But for some reason, altcoin, which is a tech startup, Anybody, any Joe Blow can go buy it, which is very dangerous. And I'm all for non-accredited investors investing in good deals, but like with a lot of these altcoins, like they call them S coins for a reason. It's just garbage a lot of times, but they have access to it. And I think people invest off like ego on what looks cool. And I think IPOs definitely fall on sexy type
0: of Re- real investing. estate is not sexy. That's for sure. It's
1: boring overalls and hard work, and it takes a long.
0: Unless we go to Vegas, then then real estate might be sexy. We gotta go to Vegas.
1: Which is funny. You're just gonna go to some boring rental and there's nothing to do. And then you're gonna be like, all right, what's for lunch before we go do something later on. But anyway, if uh, people wanna you know build up their community with more accredited investors, check out the family office on a mastermind uh, simplepassivecashflow.com/slash/journey. And this is like a classic question that comes up, right? What's a good profit projection split? And people in my family office group, they know like it's nothing to do with is it a 90-10, 80-20 split. It's all what are the assumptions of the deal and is it a good deal? Because who cares if you get 99% of a crap deal that doesn't make any money, right? You're probably better off being in a 50-50 split deal that's actually a strong deal that's underwritten properly. But if nobody's got any questions, uh, type it in the, into the comments box. We'll wrap this up. Ending. Any last comments there for the group, Dean?
0: No, just uh, now, like you said, we're halfway through the year. Now is a good time to reflect on what happened in the first half and look forward to the second half.
1: Yes, that is always the wake-up call, right? It's, oh, shoot, it is July 2020. No, July 2022 or 2021. <laughs> it's a time to get working. What is something that you drop the ball on and you're going to pick up the second half of the year?
0: Yeah. The unwork related. Well work related. I think we talked about my my team and trying to get a a VA, get get some virtual assistant and leverage off of that. On the non business related, my son is getting into tennis and he's getting very serious. Well, I think he's getting serious. I'm actually getting into tennis myself. I'm gonna start playing in like a, a league that starts up in August and I've been trying to get a little bit serious in terms of getting reps, even watching some Wimbledon going on right now.
1: I wanna play tennis too.
0: Let's do it. Man. Hear,
1: yeah. Can you find me a like a coach that will hit me balls? Yeah. I'm not very good. He doesn't need to be a, that great of a coach.
0: Or I was gonna buy a ball machine, so maybe we just I'll just buy one of those and you can just use it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, that would have
1: been really good. Newtown, their driving range is reopening. If you wanna just mm-hmm. smash some balls, that's Dude, another that's, way. But that but also that. that that tennis how much is that tennis ball?
0: machine i think it's like it's under a grand it's like, i think 700 something without the balls but once you, if you buy the the alternator with it, it has like special balls it may be a little over 900 bucks or something
1: yeah did you see the log shagger that they also have it looks like a little Roomba.
0: is that the one that it looks like a bingo thing not that one no,
1: it, it, it it crawls the tennis court Oh,
0: like automatic like a Roomba. oh my gosh no way.
1: yeah <laughs> How much do you anything worth it these days is a thousand bucks, right? I'm just guessing. Oh, okay. You don't get any good toys for less than. Uh,
0: one of us hit the other one shag. We'll, we'll be good. We we'll just get the machine.
1: Yeah. Alright. Alright, everybody. We'll see you guys next time.
0: See ya. A free real estate investing group.
1: Check out R E I Aloha.com.
0: Just two local guys with so much to say So listen to the real estate brought us today Hey, just some legal stuff here. Although these two brothers are pretty knowledgeable and have over 2,100 rental units and own over $160 million worth of real estate, the preceding are only ideas and not to be taken as legal tax or financial advice, okay? You should always seek the
1: professional advice of other professionals on your team and think for yourself and do your own due diligence, okay? Aloha.